At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Please now, if you would, take out your Bibles, take out the Word of God, and turn in the Word of God, if you would, to the gospel, actually the book of Ruth, to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. I'm here, there we go, I finally got the thing working again up here. We're very, very excited to continue on in our our journey in the book of Ruth and actually complete that today. You know, and our journey has really been honestly amazing. It has been intriguing. I think it has been enlightening. What an incredible book the book of Ruth is. In fact, F.P. Huey said this about the book of Ruth. He said, the book of Ruth is the most beautiful short story ever written. And if you have missed some of this series, I would strongly encourage you to go back and look at chapter one, two, and three. And uh, don't miss out on all that is packed into this book. In fact, I have so enjoyed this series. Um, just, I'm not really ready to end it today, but we are going to be closing it out today. We've entitled this series, God Behind the Scene, which is all about the book of Ruth. And we have seen, we saw this from the very first message, a major theme in the book is the theme of God's providence. And when we did the first message, we gave you a definition of his providence. It refers to God's purposeful acts in governing the world in accordance with his eternal plan and for his ultimate honor and glory. What does that really mean? His providence means that he is always at work. He's always at work in all the events of life. He is at work in the blessings that we experience. He's at work in the people that we meet. He is at work in the circumstances that we face. He is even at work in the adversity that confronts us. And adversity comes in all kinds of flavors. It might be the loss of a job. The adversity might be a terrible accident. The adversity may be a loved one who goes into eternity too soon. It may be a special needs child that God sends our way. It may be a dire diagnosis. It may be a puzzling medical or mental issue. But he is always at work in these events of life. And we have been sharing with you a perspective over and over in this series, something we should ponder. And that is this, mystery in his plan, and a lot of times we don't know what's going on, but mystery in his plan does not mean there is no purpose in his plan. The book of Ruth begins with spiritual failure. It ends with spiritual triumph. The book of Ruth begins with grief over three funerals, and it ends up with celebrating three renewed lives. The book begins with emptiness, and it ends with unanticipated fullness. This divine invitation that God gives us in the book of Ruth shows us that real life is displayed as we see his providence at work. 
Now, we have shared with you an outline of the whole book. I want you to think about chapter 4 as we come to it now. All through the book, we've seen God's providence. In chapter 4, we see his providence and provision. We also see now that we're going to see the family in the royal line of the nation. Uh, It occurs over one year, chapter 4 does. And then we've been tracing Ruth and Naomi through the book. We saw Ruth's decision, her devotion, her character. Chapter 4, we see Ruth's provision. Naomi, we began by looking at her being embittered, then encouraged, then expectant. And now in chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, we're going to see Naomi elated. And what I want to do is I want to jump into chapter 4. I want to go through it pretty quickly because I want to leave some time at the end to pull back and look in more detail at some divine viewpoints. That sound all right to you? All right, let's do it. Now, when you come to chapter four, we can break down the chapter this way. We have the negotiations in verses one to six. We have the legal decision in verses seven to 10. We have affirming prayer in verses 11 and 12. We have the birth of this new baby in verses 13 to 17. And then it ends with the genealogy in verses 18 to 22. So let's begin by looking at the negotiations that we find in verses 1 to 6. Now, the last time we had seen Boaz in chapter 3, he was at the threshing floor. And I know he was anticipating before the events of that night had occurred that grain would need to be moved the next day. It would need to either be taken to the market or it would need to be stored But that's not what he does the next morning. Boaz is very, very anxious. I'm sure after his night with Ruth, he had trouble sleeping. No doubt Ruth had trouble sleeping after she had heard the promises that Boaz was giving. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, That morning then that Boaz got up and he went to the gate. Now, what does that mean? Well, in in cities at the time, there was an area set aside at the city gate. Remember, they would close the gates at night. And there are some excavations that have been done of ancient sites that at the gate area, there were actually built-in benches. And so this is where people would gather. Uh, The gate area was very much like a combination of our county courthouse and coffee shop. It was both of those things woven together. It was where you would do official business. It's where all legal transactions would occur. And since most people who lived inside of the city worked outside of the city, that means in the morning they would go out from the gate and in the evening they would come back through the gate. And remember this closer relative that Boaz had talked about in chapter 3? Well, in verse 1, we learned that he was coming by, probably on his way out to work that day. And Boaz says to this individual, turn aside and sit with us. And then it says, he gathered together, verse 2, 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So if you had some built-in benches there, they're all gathering right there. And what's going to happen is he's going to make a proposal to this closer relative, verses 3 and 4. He says to this relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell 
the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, who had been her husband. And he basically says, I want to inform you that you would consider buying that land before those who are sitting here, before the elders and my people. And if you will redeem it, go ahead, redeem it. But if not, tell me, because I am after you in line in terms of closeness of the relationship. So he's, he's basically saying to this guy, Naomi has to sell the land of Elimelech. Now, we don't know what was going on in the 10 years with that land while they were in Moab. Maybe it had just been neglected and it was overgrown in a significant way. Uh, maybe it would mean that um, if you were going to have to get that land back up to produce, it would create a lot of money that needed to be spent. But what he's really communicating with this guy is we want to keep the land inside of the extended family, among the relatives. And this guy, no doubt, was thinking as he's hearing all this from Boaz, okay, I wonder how much money I'm going to have to spend to make that land crop worthy again. When he's basically asking, Boaz asking him, do you want to redeem it? That means to acquire the land by paying the price. And we see right there in verse four, at the end of the verse, this closer relative goes, I like the idea. I will redeem it. I'll do it. And then Boaz displays a lot of wisdom in verse five. He basically says to this gentleman, now, I also want you to know this is more than Elimelech's land. This transaction is also going to involve Ruth's hand in marriage. Because part of your obligation as the one who would redeem all of this is that you would continue the family name. Well, when he hears that, he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. I would jeopardize my own estate. Basically, what he's thinking here is that if I gain the land and I spend the money to get it up and running again, that's a financial advantage to me. But if I take Ruth, the Moabitess's hand in marriage, that's going to be a financial complication to me. And if we were to have a child together, what that would mean ultimately is this tract of land would go to that child down the road. And I would be out all of that rehabilitation money. You know, I, I've often wondered, I wonder if anything else was on this gentleman's mind. Because everybody had heard about Ruth the Moabitess, right? And how Naomi had come back. I wonder if he was thinking, there were three men with Ruth down in Moab and none of them ever came back. Why would I want to get married to this woman? I don't want to have the same fate that they had. Well, all of that then leads to the legal decision that occurs in verses 7 to 10. Look at verse 7. It tells us there was a custom in the time. This book is actually being written uh, later than the events. It's looking back on it. It says there, there was this custom in those days uh, regarding the redemption and exchange of land. To confirm any manner, what would happen is a man would remove his sandal and he would give it to another person and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. The idea seemed to be that 
you know, in those days, you could ceremonially claim property by walking on it, and it seems because of that, this symbol came up that you would transfer the right to having land to another person by handing them your sandal. I don't know much how, how much sandals cost in that day, but that's what you would do. You would take your sandal off and you would give it to the other person. It's exactly what happens in verse 8. The closer relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then what happens? Verse 9. Interesting here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, (laughs) what had apparently been happening is all this was going on. Maybe one person was saying to the next, what's happening over there? I don't know what's going on. Well, it has something to do with Naomi and Elimelech's land and has something to do with Ruth. And so all these people, all these passerbys began to gather around. And so he says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, speaking of the land, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, the sons of Elimelech. And then he goes on to say, moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, which is what everybody knew her by, the widow of Malon. Here's the first and only time we learn which of the two sons of Naomi she was married to. She was married to Malon. And then he goes on to say, She will be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. It was very big to keep the family name going so that the name of the deceased shall not be cut off from the rest of the relatives or from the court of his birthplace, which was Bethlehem, and you are witnesses today. And then that leads to some affirming prayer that occurs in verses 11 and 12. It's interesting to me that this group prayer breaks out. And it is a threefold group prayer. The first part of that prayer is in verse 11, where it says, may the Lord, may Yahweh God, make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. What does that really mean? Well, it's interesting that Rachel and Leah were once barren themselves, just like Ruth had been. And Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob. And to them, Rachel and Leah were born eight of the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this prayer request, the prayer that they give is that The Lord would make the woman who's coming into your house like them. They were a foundation to the nation. It's a big prayer. May she be a foundation to the nation. Second prayer occurs in the end there of verse 11. May you achieve wealth in Ephrathath. That's just another name for Bethlehem and become famous in Bethlehem. There was a prayer that Boaz, first for Ruth, that she would become like a foundation to the nation, then that Boaz would prosper financially, that he would become a man of prominence, a man of notoriety in the nation and in the city. And then the third request is in verse 12, where, so you had something about Ruth, you had something about Boaz, and then something about their offspring. 
May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Talking about the offspring which the Lord will give you through this young woman. Now, now Tamar is being mentioned here. Interesting, she was also a widow, just as Ruth was. But what's the purpose behind the whole idea of Perez, the birth of Perez? Well, the birth of Perez signaled the founding of the tribe of Judah. May the child that comes from your marriage be that foundational as Perez was in the founding of the tribe of Judah. So then we're moving along. We come to the birth in verses 13 to 17. Notice verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. Notice the little phrase, the Moabitess has been dropped. He took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now, when I was reading through verse 13, there's a phrase there that just leaped out at me. I thought, you don't hear that phrase today. And that is that phrase where it says, the Lord enabled her to conceive. When's the last time you heard something like that said in a movie? When's the last time you, you saw that kind of an attitude and perspective being shared? It ought to be because it's true. Pregnancy is a gift from the Lord. Look at verses 14 in the first part of verse 15. It says there, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. Now, who is the redeemer they're talking about? You might say, well, the redeemer is Boaz. Isn't he the one who's redeeming the land and marrying Ruth? But that's not really what they're talking about here. Notice the redeemer is the one when he goes on to say, your daughter-in-law has given birth to him at the end of verse 15. Ruth's redeemer, they are saying, is this new baby who comes along. And they're, they're basically saying, may he become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. The book begins with Naomi's losses and it ends with Naomi's big gain. Also, you'll notice it says there in verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you. How do you know that someone loves you? Biblically speaking. How do you know? Well, the biblical definition of love, which we have shared before, is this. Love is my commitment to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost, regardless of what the cost would be. That's what love really means. What do we see when we see the life of Ruth? We see that Ruth made the choice to return with Naomi to the land of Bethlehem. She did that. We've seen that she worked hard to meet the needs of Naomi as she gleaned in the field. And then we have seen that she made a priority to help secure Naomi's future 
when she boldly and assertively approached Boaz. And you'll notice it says there that she, Ruth, is better to you than seven sons. Now think about the way the whole book flows. Naomi had no idea where God's providence would lead when she was facing the loss of her husband and her two sons. But now look is what, what has happened. This wonderful marriage has taken place. The family name, the family land has been redeemed. And notice in verse 16, it says that Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And we learn in verse 17 that the boy was named Obed, which is likely a shortening of the name Obadiah. The name Obadiah means servant of the Lord. And ultimately what ends up happening is that this child becomes part of the royal line that leads to King David. Which then leads us to the genealogy in verses 18 to 22. And it's just a genealogy being laid out. Starts with Perez, works its way down through. And you know it says there in verse 22, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David. That is speaking of King David. See, in all the events that are transacting in all of this, God's providence, the plan of salvation is always at the center of God's radar in what he was doing. So we've blasted through pretty quickly chapter four. I want to take a moment to look at at least one life lesson from the book, and then we're going to talk about some other stuff. And the life lesson is that God's grace is amazing. Really think about what happens in this book. Ruth is an idol-worshiping woman from Moab, one of the enemy nations of Israel. And Ruth is transformed as she trusts in Yahweh God. And then she ends up being granted, being part of the royal lineage of the Messiah. Ruth becomes the great-grandmother to King David. Ruth becomes 27 great-grandmothers to Jesus. That's amazing grace on God's behalf. And you know, when you look at another genealogy in Matthew chapter one, which traces the full genealogy up to Jesus, you find some interesting people in that genealogy. You find Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. She was the one who had deceived her father-in-law to get herself impregnated. You have Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute originally, in the line of Jesus' genealogy. You have Ruth, who was at one point a pagan Moabitess. You also have in that genealogy in Matthew 1, a gal you remember by the name of Bathsheba, who was a Hittite adulteress. Is that not amazing grace on God's part? Have you ever thought about this? That the blood of those Gentile women who, who came out of very questionable backgrounds ran in the Lord Jesus' veins? That's amazing grace. And what it means for you and me and for everyone that regardless of anyone's past, the arms of the God of the universe are open to those who might turn to him. And he is ready and willing to transform them and to bless 
them. Now, as we're closing this out, as we draw this series officially to a close, I really want to step back for a few moments. I want to take a final look at God's providence, which we have said is the theme throughout the book. A passage I want to direct our attention to is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. It says there, this is God speaking, Truly, I am God, I alone. I am God, and there is no one like me. And notice the description that he gives of himself, who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred, who says, my plan will be realized. I will accomplish what I desire. That is God's providence at work. And what does that really mean? It means that in any given moment, God is doing 100,000 things that we're not even aware of. It's unbelievable. But because we are finite, because we are earthbound, understanding how God's providence is at work in our life is very, very limited. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I just wish I was in the third heaven. You know, where you could sort of step out on the balcony and you could look down and see everything that is going on, even in your own life. Where you could see the full story of the whys. Why the pain, God? Why the difficulties, God? Why the losses, God? Remember what we've been saying by way of perspective all through this series. Mystery in his plan and there is a lot of that to us, does not mean there's no purpose in his plan. And in the book of Ruth, God uses spiritual failure, God uses famine, God uses three funerals as an integral part, his providential plan outworking in their life. Now, Naomi and Ruth were in the midst of all that. They didn't really understand what was going on. In fact, it was puzzling, especially to Naomi, for 10 plus years. Lord, what are you doing? Now, eventually, after 10 plus years, they began to see, they began to get some insights. You know, and some people may say, well, that's nice that they got to see that. It's been longer than 10 years for me. I still don't really understand why the Lord allowed that to happen what his purpose was in this occurring. You know, you you might say, at least they saw some positive outcome during their life. And the fact is that some will never see the full outworking of his providence in this life. You know, I I think about Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries who were working with the Hurani Aka Indians How much do you think they saw that their death, you know, is working out in some way in their life? They didn't really have an opportunity to see this at all. I want to share with you a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. He said this, you may be God's foothold for things of which you cannot dream. Man, that is good. You know, it's really true of Jim Elliott's life. God used him as a foothold for things which he never dreamed 
would happen. And the same thing is true in your life and mine. We can be a foothold for things of which we could never dream that God was doing. By the way, have you ever noticed that a lot of very spiritual men in history used only their first initial of their name? You ever notice that? I want to share with you another quote. This is one from B. Alfred Hess. (laughs) B. Alfred Hess says this. God orchestrates the sufferings and struggles of his children and utilizes them to serve his grand purposes, both in our mission in this world and for our ultimate eternal blessing. You ever think about this, that even Jesus in his humanity felt deep puzzlement? Remember one of the things he said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's going to use those sufferings and struggles to serve his grand purposes in our mission in this world, and we're going to learn more about it all when ultimately we experience eternal blessing in heaven. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 7.14 said this, in times of prosperity, be joyful. In times of adversity, consider this. God has made one as well as the other because he's working his providence in your life and mine. Now, as we're wrapping this up, I wanna share what I think is the core lesson for all of us in this series, and that is that we savor the providence of God. We savor it. See, one day in eternity, the heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the seas will roar with praise, the hills will sing for joy, and we will worship his excellencies. We need to savor the providence of God. This week, my wife went to an estate sale, and uh, she bought this wall hanging here, which basically says the best is yet to be. Now, when she bought this, she brought this home and said, I bought this wall hanging at an estate sale. And I said to her, we don't need any more stuff. But then it was like the Holy Spirit sort of poked me a little bit. You know, you're leading a study of the book of Ruth. The best is yet to be. And we need to remember that in our life as we're facing difficult things. The best is yet to be, no matter what we are facing. In the meantime, the best is yet to be. Let's savor his providence. But here's the question. Why? Why should we savor his providence? Why should we do that? Well, I want to share with you at least three reasons why. First one is when we savor the providence of God, it leads to deeper awe in our life. Exodus 11, or rather 1511 says this, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, in glorious deeds, doing wonders in our life. And you could look at 
Psalm 33, 11, Romans 11, verses 33 to 36 in the same way. We should savor the providence of God. It leads to deeper awe. Second reason why we should savor the providence of God is it changes the way we view everyday life. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. I've said this before, how many things are left out of all things? When we understand that, it changes the way we view everyday life. And so that everything happens always occurs within the realm of his providence. Think of Naomi again. She had no idea when she lost her husband and her two sons as she was wrestling with the grief and the confusion and the helplessness. She had no idea that God was at work to bless her beyond her wildest dreams. Third reason why we should savor the providence of God is it strengthens us to be patient, trusting, and faithful when we face difficult and dark circumstances. See, he is always embroidering, he's always weaving beauty, even from the most perplexing threads that entangle our lives. Benjamin Malachi Franklin said this, not until the loom is silent, and sometimes that means not until we're really ready to be out of this life, and the shuttles cease to fly, Shall God unroll the pattern and explain the reason why? The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the life that God has planned. Savor the providence of God. And as we're dealing with difficulty, and it can be very hard difficulty, we need to remember that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. You can count on it. His throne is built on righteousness and justice. He is doing the right thing even when we don't understand it. And he is the God who is justice. He's always going to do the fair thing. They are the foundations of his throne. And then also we need to remember that we have a guaranteed and certain future hope. Just, I'm not going to read through it now, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Take time to read through that. Take time to read through that. And part of what is that saying to us? It's saying to us, yes, the best is yet to be. We need to always remember that when it gets really hard. The best is yet to be. And then I have one final question for us as we conclude our series. And that question is, who is the hero of the story of Ruth? Who is the hero of the story of Ruth? Some people would say, well, you know, the hero of the story is Boaz because Boaz treats a foreigner with sensitivity and kindness. Boaz steps up to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Boaz is the hero of the story. Some people might say, you know, it's Naomi who is really the hero of the story because she bounces back from her bout with bitterness and she gives wise counsel to Ruth about her future. Some people would say, no, I think the hero of the book of Ruth is Ruth because Ruth makes this incredible commitment to provide for and to, to serve her mother-in-law who'd been deeply wounded. And then in boldness and assertiveness, she presents a plan 
for marriage that would not only benefit her, but also benefit Naomi. So who is the hero of the book of Ruth? Well, what's the title of this series we've given? God behind the scene. The hero of the book of Ruth is God himself. It is Yahweh God. Another name for Yahweh God is the Lord Jesus. Remember, we, we had mentioned that Boaz is a little bit of a picture of Jesus. And remember, when we talked about a kinsman redeemer, one of the things a kinsman redeemer had to be is they must be a blood relative. Guess who was a blood relative of you and me? Jesus. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that he might redeem. Another qualification of a kinsman redeemer is they must be fully free to redeem. What do we see in the Lord Jesus? Well, he, as it says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. He was fully free to to redeem all of us. And then we mentioned a kinsman redeemer must also be willing to redeem was Jesus. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And then fourth, we said that a kinsman redeemer must have the price of redemption. Guess who had that price? Jesus himself. 1 Peter 4, uh, 1, 18 and 19. You were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. Unbelievable. That's the hero. The ultimate hero of the book of Ruth. And you know what that reminds us of? That reminds us that the best antidote to discouragement and difficulty is the cross. It's the best antidote, the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for how real it is. I thank you for this incredible story of what you were doing in Ruth. And Lord, we would just simply say to you that you would help each one of us learn to savor your providence. It's gonna make a difference in how we view you. It's gonna make a difference in how we look at life. It's gonna allow us to develop some patience knowing that the best is yet to be even when we're in the middle of great difficulty. We thank you for who you are and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.